Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I am an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I am joined today by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ryan Shields, who's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Good morning, Erin. Happy to be here for episode number two. Hey, Ryan. Happy to have you. Excited to get ready. Um, excited to get going. My goodness. I'm already, I'm already not ready for this, but that's okay. Now we're ready. Um, we do want to remind our listeners if that if you are a board-certified infectious diseases pharmacist, you can actually get BCIDP credit for listening to this podcast. If you go to the SIDP website, there's information there on how to claim that credit. You can also get ACPE credit. So really, any pharmacist can get CE, and that was a lot of letters. It certainly was, Aaron. But episode two is a very special episode because we have, for the first time in the history of SIDP Breakpoints podcast, our first guest podcaster, and that is Dr. David Van Dyne. He's an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, where he's an infectious diseases specialist. You know his work from all the great work he's done in immunocompromised patient populations as a clinician, as well as as a researcher studying antimicrobial resistance. David, welcome this morning. Thank you. It's a great honor. I, I really enjoyed the first episode that you guys uh, put out, and uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be uh, on the podcast. We are so happy to have you here. Now, I have a bit of a confession to make because we want to make sure we're pronouncing your name correctly. Is it David Van Dyne? Are we doing this right? Yes, perfect. And how often do people mispronounce that across the U.S.? Uh, that, that tends to happen. Most often it turns into Van Duen. So when I was a resident, I had a an intern working with me who called me Van Doen nothing. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, generally Van Dyne is, um, uh, you know, after one uh, reminder, that's, that's pretty easy. The, the first name as far as David is, uh, is harder, I think. All right, we nailed it. I was like, Ryan, you have to introduce him, and I was just really nervous the call line wouldn't work. So, so far, so good. So I think we're ready to roll here. Okay, so David, you may have saw on Twitter last week, we wanted to prompt our audience to hear what the Twitterverse wanted to know and wanted to gather from our podcast. And the most people that responded to the poll said they wanted to hear about clinical trials that might change their practice. And this is the perfect introduction for you because you spoke at ID Week this year at a very popular session where the clinical trials were discussed in, in detail. Specifically, you talked about the clinical trials in bacteriology, and you were joined with Dr. Richard Hamill, who talked about the antifungal clinical trials, and Robin Avery, who went through the viral diseases. So certainly, you are in the right place, and people are here because they want to hear you and your comments on these trials. All right. So another awesome thing that you did is you posted these slides on your Twitter. And so if you don't follow Dr. Van Dyne already, his Twitter is at David Van Dyne. You can go and search for tweets around that time frame. And he actually posted all of this content. It's free and publicly available, which is a really amazing resource. So thank you so much for doing that. I know I was like in awe of your beautiful slides and you really very nicely walked through every step of these important clinical trials in bacteriology. So let's get started, I think, with a, an abbreviated version of your presentation. And let's start with the two trials that I think everyone in the ID space who's attended any form of any journal club this year has probably heard of. Um, but that is Oviva and Poet. So two groundbreaking trials looking at oral antibiotics. Can you kind of remind our audience what these trials were and then what were your major take-home points? Yeah, so both these trials compared uh, oral versus IV for two major infectious disease syndromes, so bone and joint infections and endocarditis. So to start with Oviva, this was an open-label, non-inferiority trial done in the UK, enrolling over 1,000 patients. And uh, there was a little bit of IV allowed uh, right up front, up to seven days, and then patients were randomized to receive either oral or IV. And as this was a, a strategy trial similar to, to POET, it was not uh, mandated what type of oral antibiotics or what type of IV antibiotics. So they really just followed sort of standard of care within those uh, groups. They looked at the primary outcome of a composite uh, definitive treatment failure within one year as noted by uh, sinus tract or, or pus or positive culture or histology. 
so pretty, uh, uh, you know, good outcome and also a good duration of, of follow-up. I think people who take care of these patients know that often, you know, failures occur late and certainly a shorter than one-year follow-up, I don't think, would have been uh, very appropriate. Um, most of the patients had uh, some sort of a metalware infection and about a third had chronic osteo. Uh, and <clears throat> most of the uh, bacteria were uh, staph aureus or coag negative staph. Those accounted for 38 and 27 percent, uh, respectively. And then there were sort of a number of other um, organisms, streptococci, and very, very few pseudomonas. Uh, almost all patients got some sort of surgical intervention. And um, then the, um, uh, you know, the, the main outcome was that uh, really oral was, was non-inferior to, um, uh, to intravenous, and they did a bunch of different analysis and subgroup, subgroup analysis, and, and this uh, effect really held true, um, you know, no matter how they, they analyzed um, the data. Um, so, so my take home from, from Oviva is that this is really a, a very nicely done uh, study, very, very large study, over 1,000 patients. And it, it really does seem that step down to, to oral therapy, uh, even with a relatively short, uh, you know, IV beginning or, or potentially with no IV beginning, uh, is, is certainly a reasonable alternative uh, for those selected patients with, with bone and joint infections. Um, questions certainly do, uh, you know, do remain, and um, one of the one of the main issues I think is, uh, you know, the role of MRSA in in um, Oviva. There were uh, about 10% of those staph aureus that were tested. They didn't have testing on on all isolates. Uh, were were MRSA, so only a very small um, subset. So uh, shall I go on with, with POET, too? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk through yeah, POET. Yeah, so POET is very, can... very similar. Uh, this was done in Denmark looking at uh, partial oral treatment of endocarditis. Here the IV arm was, was a lot longer. Uh, patients had to get at least 10 days of IV therapy and at a median received 17 days of IV therapy. So that, that's sort of important to keep in mind. Uh, they looked at left-sided endocarditis caused by gram-positive organisms, um, Patients, again, were randomized in a, in a strategy format to oral versus uh, IV. They had a composite, uh, composite outcome looking at all-cause mortality, unplanned cardiac surgery, embolic events, relapse of bacteremia. Uh, so, again, a, a quite reasonable uh, uh, outcome. Um, <clears throat> in the patient selection, it's, it's notable that only a very few patients were IV drug users, um, only 1% of the, of the total, uh, so quite different from the patients that are currently presenting in the U.S. with, with endocarditis. Um, about half of the patients had a streptococcal infection, and then about a quarter enterococcus faecalis, and about a fifth MFSA. Uh, and in this trial, no, not a single patient with MRSA was included. Uh, about a third got some form of a surgical intervention. And here again, lots of different regimens. In the, in the oral group, 23 different regimens were uh, used. And the other thing that, that's notable uh, when you look at these regimens, and this, the same goes actually for Oviva, is that there is a fair amount of um, rifamycin used. So they used uh, rifampin in Oviva and rifampicin um, in uh, POET. Um, now, I would be hard-pressed to tell you the difference, but, of course, we're talking to a um, at least partially pharmacy audience, so I'll make sure that I mention the right ones um, uh, for the right trial. Um, and then maybe you can educate me about uh, why, why they would use a, di a different uh, form, or maybe it's just a country uh, a country difference. I anyway, think... so lots lots of different uh, uh, regimens, and again in poet also non inferiority was seen for um, uh, oral versus IV. Um, the all cause mortality at six months 
was relatively low, actually, in both groups, uh, 6% in the IV group and 3% in the oral group. Uh, that difference was not statistically significantly different. Um, but when you look at sort of review articles and, and estimates um, of, of all comers in the U.S., uh, six-month mortality is estimated, so more around 20%. So there is a suggestion that maybe there is a, you know, some selection of, of patients uh, going on and that, that perhaps, um, you know, it's a slightly different type of patient. So um, similar questions with, with Poet, I think, um, about, uh, you know, different types of host, the, the IV drug use um, uh, issue, uh, how long do you need to give these agents for? Uh, how long do you need to give the initial IV arm for? Um, and sort of what to do with different uh, <clears throat> uh, different pathogens, and then the, you know the role of rifamycin that I mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the differences because as pharmacists, of course, we're like, what dose did they use? What regimens did they use? I actually learned from Oviva that they don't have really oral cephalosporins in England. It's like not a thing. Um, so none of the patients received oral cephalosporins that were in the beta-lactam group. And of course, beta-lactams were the minority of oral antibiotics received. Um, but really interesting data. I do think there's a good point about how low the mortality is. These patients seem to do very well overall. And it's like, can we pragmatically represent that in the real world? Do our patients have similar outcomes? Um, I've actually twice since Oviva came out, though, been on ID consults and had, had two different patients where they were we were going to discharge them on IV therapy because that's what we do and really paused and considered, could I send this patient home on orals and, and did that twice. And it was felt really good to be like, wow, this patient doesn't have to go to a skilled nursing facility or whatnot. Um, have you seen any uptake? But that's, I mean, two patients in all this time, right? Have you seen any uptake and change in your practice at UNC incorporating either of these trials? Yeah, I think people are certainly um, willing, to, willing to consider this. Um, there is an, an element of uh, you know, it's it's not my patient, or my my patient wasn't represented in these in these trials, which I think is always sort of um, difficult when when you're trying to institute uh, stewardship. Um, my my clinical practice is is uh, solely um, immunocompromised hosts of patients with solid organ transplant, or bone marrow transplant, or hematologic malignancies. Uh, so we're, we're, we tend to be more conservative uh, overall. Uh, that being said, uh, in those you know in those patients, the you know the need for uh, oral antibiotics or, and the, the benefits of oral antibiotics can also be uh, greater, and the risk of having a line for a long time <clears throat> can also be greater. So we've we've certainly uh, considered that. I don't see a lot of of bone and joint infections, so it actually hasn't uh, presented itself in that way. And then the the endocarditis that we do see tends to be mostly in our uh, in our VAT population. So that's that's again a sort of a different um, uh, different story. So it, it, we really haven't had much of a chance to directly um, uh, implement it, but. I think for, for a stable patient, especially if they are a little bit further out from transplant uh, or, or further out from chemo, um, I, I would certainly consider it and, um, it, you know, it remains an individualized decision. I thought you read my mind. My next question was going to be, how would you feel about orals in an immunocompromised population and does that change? I think you answered that nicely. Thank you so much. I'm going to hand you off to Ryan to talk about the next kind of important group of trials you went through and that, that is largely on MRSA, which as we discussed was mostly excluded from these first two trials. Yeah, and I think the narrative with MRSA is so important now because this is one of the target pathogens that we see and we is on our radar. So the next session we talk a little bit, you talked in your session about combination therapy for MRSA bacteremia, and you highlighted a couple trials, including CAMERA2, which we covered on our ECMID podcast. And just to remind people, this was really a randomized controlled trial comparing largely vancomycin to the combination of vancomycin plus either flucloxacillin or cefazolin. And what was important about this study is that there was really no difference in the primary outcome of overall mortality, but there was improved clearance perhaps with combination therapy. 
But we can remember sitting in the ECMID room when these data were presented, they flip to the next slide and there's this audible gasp of, oh my goodness, there is higher acute kidney injury in patients who got combination therapy, which is certainly an outcome that we thought could happen with penicillins and vancomycin, but we really didn't anticipate. So I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on that, as well as the other study you presented on combination therapy for MRSA bacteremia, and that's the open-label randomized controlled trial that was stopped early by Geriac and colleagues, published just this year. Yeah, so actually your your podcast was incredibly helpful to me when I was um, preparing my slides for for ID Week, so thank you for, for that. Um, I, I also want to thank uh, Dr. Tong, who um, uh, I reached out to by, by email to uh, try to make sure that I had the details correct, because, of course, it's always a little bit tricky when you're um, presenting something that has only been uh, presented in, in abstract uh, format. Yeah, I thought it was incredibly um, informative, the CAMERA 2 trial, for, for a number of reasons. One is the... Um, Sort of the observation that led to them doing the trial in the sense that um, earlier clearance was predicted, uh, that actually held true. So there was, there was a um, uh, pretty significant difference to uh, having less positive cultures at day five. It was 11% in the combination arm versus 20% in the, in the standard arm. So the, <clears throat> um, you know, the idea was not necessarily uh, a, a bad one. It just didn't result in a tangible uh, outcome that was uh, important to patients. And then, um, so there was no, you know, there was no significant difference in the day 90 mortality. In fact, numerically, it was slightly higher in the combination arm. And then this, yeah, this, this uh, acute kidney injury issue that you mentioned uh, is, is very interesting, and again, is something where doing a clinical trial is just so important to make those observations and to um, you know to learn about those things. And uh, the other thing uh, that I think you, you, you and Aaron highlighted in, in your podcast as well was that this was really driven by this vancomycin-flupoxacillin combination and was not seen in the vancomycin-cephazolin combination. So very uh, reminiscent of some of this observational literature that we've seen come out about vancomycin-piptazo uh, combination. Um, and I think, you know, more and more this cumulative evidence that, that those are the types of combinations that you really want to avoid. Um, this This... Trial by by Geriac et al. Um, uh, again, uh, comparing essentially vancomycin monotherapy versus uh, daptomycin plus ceftaroline um, is very intriguing. And and I presented these these data to just to my colleagues here at, at UNC uh, yesterday, and there was a lot of discussion about this this one slide. I I pretty much uh, was stopped there and um, was starting to worry that I wouldn't get through the rest of my slides. Um, so one thing is <clears throat> that daptomycin was given at a dose of, of 8 milligram per kilogram. Um, so the first question I think that, that I had when seeing the, the benefit of this uh, the combination therapy of daptomycin and ceftaroline over uh, vancomycin, again, small numbers, but the 90-day uh, mortality in the Vanco arm was 30%, and in the combination uh, arm, nobody died. Uh, again, a total of 40 patients, so really hypothesis generating, I would say, rather than uh, proving that this is better. Uh, but the first question I had was, is this driven simply by the fact that daptomycin at this dose is just a superior treatment for, for MRSA bacteremia. And when you go back to the original um, uh, papers on, uh, you know, the trial done comparing daptomycin versus um, uh, vancomycin, and they did um, uh, a subgroup analysis that was published separately by, by Remedal in JAC, um, there was already a hint that at the dose of 6 milligram per kilogram, that there might be superiority of daptomycin over vancomycin. So <clears throat> that was that was one question. And then, of course, uh, 
you know, is there is there an additional benefit of uh, of ceftaroline, and what is that benefit, and uh, how great does that benefit need to be to warrant you know the additional um, cost? Um, but it's yeah, it's just unfortunate that the that the, the sample size is so small, um, but but certainly a very dramatic effect, and um, yeah, lots of questions. Yeah, absolutely, more I questions think- than answers, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting catch-22 because the trial was stopped early because of the mortality signal, but then now we say the numbers are too small to make a claim. I think it was also interesting in this trial, I think which will be more telling as we move forward in infectious diseases and understand the host, the antibiotics, and the pathogens interplay better, was that they measured IL-10 concentrations in these patients, and mortality was zero in the daptoceftaroline arm in patients with elevated IL-10s, where it was almost 30% in monotherapy. So there's some signal, too, I think, that patients at higher risk of mortality benefit from more aggressive combinations up front, of course, like we see this in other studies as well, gram-negative studies. Um, But I think we just, we have so much to learn in this space which segues us nicely. Let's get to gram negatives. So we have to talk about seven versus 14 days of therapy for gram negative bacteremia, huge landmark study that was presented at ECMID in 2018 as a late breaker trial, and then um, was published in CID in 2019. So do you mind walking us through that paper? Yeah, not at all. Uh, very interesting uh, study. Um, so this was a, uh, also an open-label study, non-inferiority, uh, primarily performed in, in Israel, two sites there, one site in Italy as well. Uh, they enrolled over 600 patients who had monomicrobial gram-negative bacteremia. Now, these patients had to survive until day seven after uh, positive blood cultures, and had to have only one day of positive blood cultures. <clears throat> they had to have uh, no uncontrolled focus, no neutropenia, uh, no HIV, um, and no recent uh, stem cell transplant. And uh, again, at, the, at day seven, they had to be quite stable, uh, no fevers, uh, et cetera. Um, so at day seven, they were then randomized to either stop there for a total of seven-day treatment or to be uh, extended to a total of 14-day uh, treatment. And the first day was counted as the first day of in vitro active antibiotics. Uh, they had a composite outcome as well, looking at uh, uh, the outcome at 90 days, uh, which was a composite of all-cause mortality, relapse of bacteremia, local or distant complications, readmission, and a prolonged hospital stay. So one of the things that was uh, notable, I thought, about this trial was that they really screened uh, quite a number of, of patients. Almost 5,000 patients were, sc- were screened to get to be 600. And these, these uh, 5,000 patients were already patients who had survived until uh, day seven. And some of the common... Uh, exclusion criteria were uh, an uncontrolled focus, uh, either an inability or refusal of consent, uh, and then being unstable or still having a fever, uh, having polymicrobial infection, or being immunosuppressed. Uh, so that, that gives you some idea of patients, at least in, for which this trial does not give you the evidence to pursue these, these short-term treatments. When you look at the bacteria that were included, uh, <clears throat> these were primarily Enterobacteriaceae, and of those, 60, 63% in, in, of the total group was E. coli. Um, very small number of, of uh, Pseudomonas, only 8%. Uh, and primarily the source of the bacteremias was from the urine in 68%. Uh, looking at the outcomes, uh, again, non-inferiority was seen for um, uh, short versus long, so for seven days versus 14 days, both for the composite and then also uh, when they broke down this composite into its components. Uh, so importantly, 90-day mortality was, was uh, quite similar, 12% in the seven-day group and 11% in the 14-day group. Um, so my my take home from that that study is that <clears throat> excuse me so that 
patients who are stable at day seven who have enterobacteriaceae secondary to a urinary source, those can certainly be safely treated with a seven-day course. Uh, I, I think this, this evidence is quite strong in that, uh, in that subgroup. Um, now, whether we can uh, extrapolate that to, to other uh, types and other sources and other uh, patients, uh, with gram-negative bacteremia, I think that sort of remains to be seen. Um, certainly not uh, impossible, but not not proven by this by this particular trial. Um, and again, I don't mean to diminish what what they have done in any way, shape, or form, because I think it's really a quite a heroic uh, effort and answering questions that you know certainly in, when I did my fellowship, we didn't have an answer to, but. Even the people that were, you know, teaching me when I did, was doing my fellowship, when they were doing their fellowship, we didn't have an answer to. So it's it's quite uh, quite a nice trial. Uh, another sort of more minor point is that there's been some discussion in the literature about whether it's even worthwhile doing follow-up blood cultures in gram-negative uh, bacteremia. So this study used that explicitly as one of their enrollment criteria. So I think probably... If I was going to use this seven-day course, I would want to have at least one documented uh, negative blood culture. Uh, another thing I just want to highlight is that there is a trial ongoing uh, in the U.S., the so-called balance trial, that is looking at more critically ill patients uh, to see if those can also be treated with a shorter course. Yeah, I think you bring up really good points. Those are all really interesting data and takeaways. I know we've started at Pitt to try to intervene on on just the urinary source, like you said, it's a you we kind of the same. You screen hundreds of patients to include you know ten to twenty at, at our population level, but it's pretty amazing looking at the pre-intervention. Everyone got fourteen days, and post-intervention, everyone gets seven. So I mean, kudos to these authors if we're able to cut therapy in half for this group. Even if we start with the small subgroup of patients, what a huge impact on patient care and antibiotic exposure. I'm going to let Ryan uh, wrap up here with you on the last set of important gram-negative trials. All right, David, we have to get you out on this note. You are a world-renowned expert in the studies of antimicrobial resistance, and over this last year, we've had three small pathogen-directed studies focused on carbapenem-resistant pathogens. Those are Tango-2, CARE, and Restore-ME1. So you're the expert in this field. What's your take on these small pathogen-directed studies, and how can they help clinicians trying to utilize these new antimicrobial agents that have been recently approved? Yeah, so these were quite uh, uh, similar trials. Uh, Tango 2 looked at uh, meropenem-vaporbactam versus best available therapy, had uh, 47 patients with CRE infections. Um, the CARE study uh, compared colistin versus plazomycin, a new uh, aminoglycoside, and uh, here the comparison was on top of a backbone of either tigacycline or uh, meropenem. They enrolled 37 patients with CRE infection, and the Restore IMI uh, study looked at imipenem relabactam and compared it to imipenem plus colistin. Now, uh, and, and this study actually had most, uh, so the Restore IMI study had mostly uh, pseudomonas uh, patients in it, a total of uh, 31 patients, and uh, 24 of those had pseudomonas. The other seven had CRE so all of these studies were underpowered for inferential statistics and were also presented uh, for the most part as uh, quote-unquote descriptive uh, studies. Um, the Restore-IMI study actually had more centers participating than they actually ended up with patients, so 35 centers, 31 patients. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think that the, the first sort of takeaway from all of these studies is that it is just incredibly difficult to perform these studies, and they are very different from standard pharma-sponsored um, skin and soft tissue, complicated UTI studies, and they're even much more difficult than um, uh, have fab studies, which uh, in and of themselves are already quite uh, difficult. Uh, so I do think that these uh, that, the, that the companies that put out these drugs uh, are to be commended for uh, at least trying to get some data um, from from randomized studies uh, out there. 
basically, the bottom line is that, again, each individual trial is uh, underpowered um, for inferential statistics, but numerically, the outcomes were better with the newer uh, agents. So, for instance, meropenem, febobactam, compared to uh, best available therapy, uh, had a 28-day mortality in the <clears throat> in the bad arm of 33% versus meropenem of 16%, um, and uh, renal toxicity was also much higher in the best available therapy arm. In the placemycin study, um, there was uh, significantly uh, higher all-cause mortality in the in the colistin arm. In the restore imi study, actually the primary outcome was um, uh, sort of a separate outcome for each infection state, um, and that, that primary outcome was not different in, in, uh, in both groups, 71 for 70%, but there was a much higher um, acute kidney injury in the colistin arm of 56% versus 10% in imipenem and also 28-day mortality, again, was much higher in the colistin arm of 30% versus 10% in the repentant relobactam. So taking all of this together, and then especially uh, in the context of some of the observational data that, that you, Ryan, have uh, really put on the map, um, I think it's, it's fair to say that we have sufficient evidence to say that colistin is consistently worse than uh, comparators. And uh, <clears throat> there's, of course, lots of questions remaining. Ideally, we would like to see uh, you know, sufficiently powered uh, trials. Um, there are several other uh, new agents for which we don't have uh, these data available. Uh, Cystatidin avibactam was first on market uh, and uh, we we have uh, a bunch of observational data, but really no uh, randomized data for for series specifically. Um, Cefidrocol has a trial that I think was included in their FDA package, but it has not been uh, reported upon. Uh, Ravacyclin um, and and uh, also for uh, carbapenem resistant pseudomonas specifically, Cefidrolazine, uh, Tazobactam. The other uh, question, I think, and, and this is, where, again, Ryan, where you would uh, really be, be the expert, is in treatment emergent resistance with these novel agents, and what, if anything, can be done to, to prevent that? Um, for instance, does it help to use combination therapy? Does it help to add uh, either an aminoglycoside or a carbapenem uh, to these novel agents, or does that just make matters worse? Yeah, David, I think you hit the nail right on the head. First of all, we have to absolutely commend these companies for doing these studies. For as difficult as they are, they help to close this very important gap in the scientific information that's been developed for standard registry trials to get an FDA indication and the information that clinicians need to be able to optimize the use of these agents in their clinical practice. So even though these are small inferential studies, they're so valuable for providing this key real-world evidence in the fashion of a randomized trial. Now, I think the other piece of information that helps close that gap is, is exactly what you just mentioned at the end there, is these observational studies. We all know when we're taking care of patients in our hospital, when they hit day 30 and we assign that outcome of success or failure, dead or alive, if they're still in our hospital on day 31, we're still managing them and still taking care of them. So we have to know what happens with the longer-term outcomes. This is certainly where we see recurrent infections and possibly the emergence of resistance. So these are two important areas that we have to continue to study and publish observational trials so we can all learn together on the optimal use of these agents. Now, I have to mention my absolute favorite figure in the entire meeting was your figure with Callistin on a tombstone saying, rest in peace, and I fully agree with you. So, David, can we agree today it is finally time to put Callistin to bed, particularly for CRE infections? I could not agree more. All right. On that note, uh, we have to thank you on behalf of Aaron and SIDP. Thank you so much for being here today. Your insights and, and descriptions of the data were so useful to our audience and to us. We thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you, and hopefully we can have you on future podcasts moving forward. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this.
Wow, Aaron, that was incredible insight from David Van Dyne, who walked through those studies so nicely. And it's really important to hear about how these studies have started to change his practice, something we've seen here in Pittsburgh as well. But let's move on and finish up this session by talking about the viral and fungal studies that might change our practice. And I'll kick it over to you now to talk first about the viral studies that are impactful within this last year. Thanks, Ryan. I mean, that's a very tough act to follow, but I will try to do my best with the viral. So Robin Avery from Hopkins presented the practice changing trials in the viral space. And I'm going to focus on a couple of things she mentioned with CMV. One, because CMV is my favorite infection, as you may know. And two, because I think it's a really important space. And there was a lot of data in the past couple of years, particularly end of 2018 early 2019. And so first, so we call CMV affectionately the troll of transplant. Some leaders in the field have kind of coined that term and it's it's really picked up and I think it's a really relevant way to make it relatable to people who may or may not take care of these patients. But if you have taken care of a patient with CMV, you know that this disease can be truly horrible. And it's, it's really interesting how the host and the virus and antivirals play into the care of patients with CMV. And a long story short is the drugs we have are limited and they're, they're kind of terrible. I mean, they're very toxic. They're, they're amazing in that they work and that valgancyclovir absolutely changed the game and gancyclovir in being able to actually treat this virus. But they're very toxic drugs. Patients don't tolerate them and sometimes they don't work. So we know patients can develop resistance. And then when you develop resistance to gancyclovir or valgancyclovir, you're left with even less favorable treatment options in the form of phoscarnate and sodofavir. And Valgan came to the market in 2002, and it wasn't until 2017 that we had our next active CMV agent hit the market in latermavir. So kind of a regenerated sense of fervor and passion around CMV and a lot going on. So the first paper I want to talk about was actually published in CID in 2018. Roy Shamali is the lead author on that and colleagues, and they developed standardized consensus definitions for refractory and resistant CMV. And why is this important? Because increasingly, we're seeing these patients that don't have gancyclovir-resistant CMV. When you send their virus for resistance detection, it does not have any resistance mutations or determinants. However, these patients do not respond to therapy. And so this space of refractory CMV, they're behaving as if they're resistant, but they're not resistant. This is a very interesting patient population to take care of. And so this group published these standard consensus definitions, which is very important in practice changing because moving forward, One, we can diagnose our patient. You can say, oh, they're not responding to therapy, and this is a thing, and that is at least a little comforting and that we know how to define these patients and give them a diagnosis. And then, two, it gives us consistent criteria for future clinical trials and outcomes research. So if you're in the CMB space and you've dug through historical CMB literature, you know that it is kind of a mess, and it's very hard to compare because we've had different testing and different terminology for what we now call DNAemia and disease and CMV disease, so these definitions absolutely impact our practice. The other exciting data was about the drug meribavir, which is a new CMV drug in the pipeline with a novel mechanism of action. It inhibits the UL97 protein kinase and then subsequently viral encapsidation and the nuclear egress of viral particles. Importantly, it does not have activity against HSV or VZV, so it is similar to latermavir. If this drug ever is commercially available to use with our patients, you would have to have them on acyclovir prophylaxis if it was in a prophylaxis space. So what we need to know about merivavir. So first, there's no renal, hepatic, or heme toxicities, and those are the major toxicities and downfalls of the current drugs on the market. But, you know, can't give. you have to give to get, and the most common side effect with merivavir is dis dysgeusia, which I can't pronounce, but hey, why not go on the podcast saying it? Um, dysgeusia, that, I don't know. I Googled it. I listened to the Google lady pronounce it. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And I still messed it up. That's okay. That's all right. That's how we roll pretty much here. Yeah. 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 So this word that I'm I'm probably not going to say again is distortion or perversion in taste. So that sounds awful. And it is pretty common. Um, But the drug works really well. And so it was studied in phase three prophylaxis trials for stem cell and in liver transplant patients. Um, Both of these trials failed. So that's contrary to what I just said. But they used a dose of 100 milligrams twice a day 
in that trial because this taste perversion seems to be dose-dependent. And so they went with this low dose that had less ADRs that did show some antiviral activity, but then it turns out that failed in the clinical trials. So higher doses, we get better efficacy, but also more side effects. This is the struggle with all of antimicrobials. So there were early case reports, and I'm talking like early 2000s when this drug was being developed, um, for patients with refractory CMV that they treated these patients with 400 to 800 milligrams twice a day, so much, much higher doses. So what do we get in 2019? Two studies. The first one was study 202. Um, This was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in April of 2019. Phase 2 study of Merivibir looking at a dose-ranging study, so 400, 800, or 1,200 milligrams twice a day for stem cell and solid organ transplant patients with refractory or resistant CMV. The primary endpoint was viremia clearance at six weeks, and patients could receive up to 24 weeks of therapy. 66.7% of these patients cleared, which is pretty amazing when you think about how refractory and resistant these patients were on all of our current therapies. And the response was similar across all three doses, and the time to clearance was also similar. However, 65% of patients did experience this taste disturbance, and 34% of patients experienced nausea. Then the companion study was Johan Martins and colleagues and um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. This was study 203. This was comparative. So this was meribavir for preemptive treatment of CMV reactivation. They compared it to valgancyclovir. So these are uncomplicated patients. So we had 202, which was the refractory resistant patients, and they looked at if different doses made a difference. And then 203 was meribavir versus valgancyclovir for just CMV reactivation. And again, they saw similar clearance and the drugs seem to work in this space. So encouraging news, they're now enrolling in two phase three trials, study 302 and 303. Study 302 is a one-to-one randomized double-blind trial, meribavir versus valgancyclovir for uncomplicated CMV in um, stem cell transplant patients. And then study 303 is a two-to-one randomized open-label trial, and this is meribavir versus any investigator-initiated therapy for solid organ transplant patients or cell transplant patients who have refractory or resistant CMV. This is currently the only drug that's being developed for refractory-resistant CMV, so a very important niche. I think we're very excited to see the outcomes with this drug. Yeah, Erin, I can see why you're so excited about CMV. We really have so much to learn about this disease. The drugs are limited in what they do. So these trials are really influential for influencing how we're going to manage this disease moving forward in 2019 and beyond. But at that point, let me switch gears now and let's talk a little bit about fungal diseases. So Richard Hamill from Baylor College of Medicine was the presenting author for the the key clinical trials that might or in his words, might not change your clinical practice for fungal infections in 2019. And the might not part of his title was a particularly foreshadowing comment about the first study I want to mention, and that's the ACTIVE trial. The ACTIVE trial is led by Dr. Kohlberg from the Netherlands, and it was published in CID in 2019. And you may have heard of this trial already. This is a phase three double-blind randomized controlled trial, a non-inferiority trial looking at the primary treatment of candidemia or invasive candidiasis. The study drugs they were investigating here was isavuconazole, given 200 milligrams intravenously three times a day for two days, compared to, and then daily, compared to caspofungin at its standard dose, 70 milligrams once, and then 500 milligrams daily. Importantly, for patients that were greater than 80 kilograms, they could receive a higher dose of caspofungin of 70 milligrams once a day. So this trial randomized about 200 patients in each arm. 199 patients received isavuconazole initially, and 201 patients received caspofungin initially. They stayed on these IV maintenance regimens till at least day 10, and at day 10 in the study, they were allowed to switch to oral therapy. So patients in the isavuconazole arm stayed on isavuconazole, the oral formulation, or patients in the caspofungin arm then transitioned to oral voriconazole. Importantly, though, in both arms, only about 40% of patients ultimately switched to oral therapy. So Dr. Hamill went directly into the primary efficacy endpoint of this study, which was defined by a successful overall clinical response at the end of IV treatment. So this is at day 10, and they established a non-inferiority margin of 15%. And the major take-home from this study right away is that isavuconazole did not meet the non-inferiority margin for this study. 
In fact, only about 60% of patients in isavuconazole arm had a successful overall response compared to 71% of patients in the caspofungin arm. Now, if you continue to follow patients and you look at other secondary efficacy endpoints, such as their overall response two weeks after finishing therapy, there was no difference, and those met not the non-inferiority margin. But again, at the end of IV therapy, isavuconazole did not meet their margin. Now, you can look across the different Canada species here. There was a lot of Canada albicans and Canada tropicalis here. And for the most part, there was no major species that drove, drove these differences. The other important point about this study is there was no differences in other secondary outcomes. This included overall responses at test of cure visits and all-cause mortality, no difference. Now, in the sensitivity analysis, when you look at these forest plots, and Dr. Hamill did a good job kind of walking the audience through these forest plots, there's one that stands out. And we brought this up before with patients that were greater than 80 kilograms because in the forest plot, BMI was the one subgroup in which caspofungin was strongly favored compared to isavuconazole. So is this because we gave a higher caspofungin dose, or maybe we didn't get enough isavuconazole? That remains a question for future analyses, but certainly something to take away from this study. Final things from this study, really no difference in terms of treatment emergent adverse events. So both azoles and echinocannons were well tolerated here. But the major takeaways to summarize is, number one, isavuconazole did not meet its non-inferiority margin for overall response at the end of IV therapy. And this actually parlays very nicely into what the IDSA guidelines tell us about the treatment of invasive candidiasis, that we should now be preferentially using echinocannons as our initial therapy for patients with candidemia and invasive candidiasis. And when these recommendations were made uh, several years ago by the IDSA guidelines, this was really based on work from your former former colleague, Dr. David Andes, on his patient-level meta-analysis that showed if you took all the randomized controlled trial data and put it together, indeed, echinocannons do perhaps have a mortality benefit. Now, this is the first individual trial that helps support those recommendations. So I think it's reassuring to those of us that are now using preferentially echinocannons up front. These are the kind of data that help support that. Now, when you go further on beyond the end of IV therapy, isavuconazole was potentially favored as an oral step-down agent compared to voriconazole. Now, we all know the nuances of voriconazole. In this study, therapeutic drug monitoring was not done for voriconazole, so we can't be sure exactly what their exposures were or if that could have influenced outcomes. But certainly here, the large sample size, the randomized controlled trial, supports many of the things we've been doing already for invasive candidiasis. So again, it's an important clinical trial in 2019, but one that may not perhaps change your clinical practice. On the other hand, I want to move into another study that was presented in the fungal section, and this is a study titled, also published in CID, Posaconazole Serum Drug Levels Associated with Pseudohyperaldosteronism. This was a study conducted in California at UC Davis, and one of our SIDP members, Matt Davis, is there and was a contributing author on this paper. Now, if you're like me and you're like, man, I've never heard the word pseudohyperaldosteronism previously or even you said it many times. You don't use that word regularly. It's, it's, it's not something it's not, that I engage with my kids day, and we're talking day day. on it. Yeah. yeah. doesn't come up at the dinner table, actually. Nothing. I use posaconazole on the daily. I figured. Yeah. I figured. That's a good thing. And this goes to your love of therapeutic drug monitoring, right, Aaron? I love therapeutic drug monitoring. Well, yes. and this study supports perhaps we need to be doing therapeutic drug monitoring for posaconazole. So let's start with, first with what this syndrome is, pseudohyperaldosteronism. This is a syndrome that's really characterized by the suppression of plasma renin activity and aldosterone, which typically manifests then in hypertension and potentially metabolic acidosis that's associated with hypokalemia. So this was a single-sender retrospective observational study of 69 patients, predominantly in the outpatient setting. Now, if they looked at the patients and they divided those into those patients that developed hyper uh, pseudo-hyperaldosteronism versus those that didn't, what they found is that the patients that did tended to be older, had higher rates of baseline hypertension, but importantly with this study, had higher rates, of, higher levels of posaconazole. In fact, a level greater than three of posaconazole was associated with more, a more likely probability of developing this syndrome. The other thing that they pointed out, which I think is very important, that 100% of patients that had serum levels greater than four all of them develop pseudohyperaldosteronism. And this is a problem with posaconazole that we've never really had with the older formulations. There is no way with the oral suspension, despite all of our best efforts, we'd ever get to levels of four. But now we have IV therapy, we have the, the delayed-release tablets that are much better tolerated, we get higher serum levels, and so there are additional adverse effects to be aware of, and this is certainly one of them. 
they showed very nicely in this paper, and, and you can look in the paper um, that's in, of, available online at CID, basically as posaconazole levels went up, so too did the associations with changes in systolic blood pressure as well as the rates of hypokalemia. So mechanistically, what we know is posaconazole interferes with cytochrome enzymes in the cortisol synthesis pathway. This results more specifically into increased sodium, less potassium, which means for patients they're retaining more water and have higher rates of hypertension. Now, we see this with voriconazole and itraconazole too. Most of us don't recognize this syndrome or are thinking about it in our active day-to-day practices, but I think this paper is a good reminder that there are other things to look for with when we're using azoles, particularly when we're achieving high serum levels in patients that we now certainly need to be aware of. So, Erin, this is your cup of tea. Tell us what you think about azole therapeutic drug monitoring. I do think it's critically important, Ryan. I think this study is a really, really well done paper. I love that they put this data out there that shows us that we know that there is an efficacy threshold associated with these drugs, 0.7, give or take, for prophylaxis, 1 to 2, whatever you want to call it for, for treatment for posaconazole. And now we have a toxicodynamic threshold. So now we know if you have a level greater than four, you 100% of patients got this syndrome. And yeah, it's the first study and it's 69 patients, but it's pretty compelling data. And I I think if when you have a known efficacy target, a known toxicodynamic target, how can you not check a level in your patient to assess that they are getting safe and appropriate therapy? So I, I mean... If you're not doing azole TDM, I guess I would say strongly, strongly consider it. If you don't do the levels at your own center, send them out. Um, but I think you need to do your due diligence by your patient and check a level if they're on some of these azole therapies. Yeah, I think that's such a great point, Aaron, because when the tablets came out, we were assured that now we were actually going to reach therapeutic levels for patients. But now we have to consider this toxic- toxicodynamic part that you're mentioning where perhaps there's adverse events that need to be monitored for as well. So we're both in the camp of you need to monitor azoles and use therapeutic drug monitoring, and this is something that's becoming more and more clear with studies published just this year. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. And I think that about wraps us up here. So we've gone through the bacteria trials with um, Dr. Van Dyne and then worked through some of the late-breaking trials in antivirals and antifungals for 2019. We hope you've enjoyed this episode on practices that may or may not change your practice. Again, I'm Erin McCreary, joined by Ryan Shields, and you are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. 